0: Have you ever found yourself wondering about the role that Canadians played in old time radio? Well, wonder no more. During the next 60 minutes, we'll delve into the careers of actors, writers, and directors who went abroad to find work, as well as those who stayed right here in Canada. Join me as together we explore Canadians in old time radio. I'm Devin Wilkins, founder and president of COTRA, the Canadian Old Time Radio Alliance, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Canadians in Old Time Radio. The series that I have picked this week from our Made in Canada segment is called Famous Canadian Trials, and the show that I have, the episode, took place in Alberta, so I thought that you'd be particularly interested in this one.
1: The Boer Case The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation presents a play by Alan King based on an historic murder trial which took place in Alberta in the late 1920s. It was a trial in which the skills of a mind reader were used to bring about a confession. The play is part of the series Famous Canadian Trials produced in the Montreal studios of the CBC. The Boer Case On July the 9th, 1928, four persons were murdered on the ranch of Mr. Henry Boer in Alberta. As chief of police at Edmonton, it became my duty to conduct an investigation. By the time of the inquest, we had examined everybody who might be in any way concerned with the murder, followed up every clue, and studied every shred of evidence. It had all proved a complete waste of time. We didn't know who had done the shooting. We hadn't even a theory. In other words, we were baffled. And at the conclusion of the inquest, the coroner's jury could do no better than bring in a verdict of death by shooting by person or persons unknown. They had heard every shred of evidence there was, beginning with that of Constable Olson of Manville, Alberta.
2: Hi.
3: Our office received word that four persons had been killed on a farm belonging to Mr. Henry Boer, about 80 miles from Manville, and I was sent to investigate I was met by Henry Boer, his son Vernon, and a neighbor named Charles Stevenson, who'd been visiting at the time of the shooting. Henry Bohr was in a state of shock, but he was able to show me three of the victims. Who were they, Constable Olson? Well, the first was Mr. Boer's wife, Rose, who'd apparently been shot as she sat at a table in the dining room. I found three bullet holes in her neck. The second victim was Mr. Boer's eldest son, Fred. His body was lying face upwards on the floor of the kitchen and it appeared that he'd been killed by a bullet in the mouth which had thrown him backwards. Mr. Boer then led me to a bunkhouse where I found the body of Gabriel Gramby, a hired man who'd been shot twice in the head and once in the chest. What did you do then? I questioned the three persons present beginning with Vernon Bohr. I discovered the bodies. When was this? It was about 8 o'clock in the evening.
4: Where were you? Uh, I was working out in the fields. I heard rifle shots. They seemed to be coming from the house here, so I, I ran to see what had happened. When I got here, my, my mother was lying there in the dining room. I, I knelt down by her body, but she was dead. Then I went through the house and found the others. They were dead, too. What to you do then? Well, I thought I'd better get a doctor. but We haven't a telephone, so I ran to one of the neighbor, and he telephoned for Doctor Heslop. Well, that's the doctor who's here now. Yes, he came and wait a minute. What's the matter, Roger, I haven't seen him around. Who's he? The other hired man. They're kind of strange that we haven't seen him. Maybe he was well, the one. Where
3: I... do you think he might be? I, I don't know. Come on, all of you.
5: Did you conduct a search for Rosick, Constable?
3: Yes, sir. We found him in the barn, or rather his body. He'd been shot twice in the head. What did you do then? We searched the house and found nothing missing, not even money, so I concluded it was not murder and robbery. Messages were sent to some of the neighbors then. They formed a posse to search for any suspicious strangers. In the meantime, I continued to question the persons at the ranch... I asked Mr. Henry Boer where he was at the time of the shooting. Well, I was out in the fields. Surely you must have heard some of the shots. No. Oh, I wish to God I had heard them. But I was working some ways off, up on the northeast part of the east section of the rancher. I heard nothing. You any idea who might have done the shooting? No. No, not at all. Miss uh, Miss Boer, did your wife... Any enemies that you know of? Enemies? Oh, no, that couldn't be. Right, Rose. Rose was one of the best loved women in these parts. She was always doing something for the neighbors. Everybody loved her. All right, Mr. Boer. I know it's pretty hard on you. you. Just take it easy for a while. Uh, thank you, Constable. Miss Stevenson. Uh, Charles Stevenson, is it? Yes. Your neighbor, is that right? Yeah. Well, and how did you happen to be on the Boer Ranch at the time? Well, uh, Henry asked me to come over. He had a new farm equipment catalog. He wanted me to have a look at it and see what I thought about going in with him to buy a new harvester. That's right, Constable. That's quite right. Then what did you do, Constable? Well, about that time, Dr. Heslop had finished his examination, so I asked him to take Henry Boer, Vernon, and... Charles Stevenson over to Mr. Stevenson's place to see that they stayed there. Then I sent a message to Edmonton Police Headquarters and they sent down Detective Leslie and Inspector Longacre.
5: And they took over, did they? Yes, sir. Thank you, Constable.
1: Longacre and Leslie were my men. I sent them down figuring they could clean up the case without me. A few days later, Leslie sent in his report, which was just about the same as the evidence he gave at the inquest.
6: (laughs) We tested the entire house for fingerprints, found a great many. Were you able to determine whose they were, Mr. Leslie? Uh, Yes, sir. They all belonged either to members of the Boer family or to the hired hands. What other investigations did you make? Well, uh, first of all, we searched for either a revolver or a rifle, but we were unable to find one anywhere. The strangest thing of all was that not only were there no shells, there were no bullets to be found either. Do you mean that the bullets that had killed the victims were not there? Oh, that's right, sir. The killer must have gone over the house carefully and picked up every bullet and shell that had been fired. At least all except one. We did find one. And uh, where was that? Well, it was lying in some dirty water in a dishpan. We couldn't determine how it got there, but obviously the murderer overlooked it. It was hard to see. Can you say what kind of a bullet it was? Yes, sir. It had been fired from a 303 rifle. We tested it for fingerprints, but there weren't any. We made a new search for the rifle that might have been fired from, but all we found was an old shotgun and a .22, and they obviously hadn't been fired recently. No .303? Uh, no, sir. Uh, when we found the bullet, we asked if anyone owned a .303. Uh, Mr. Stevenson said he did.
5: That is Charles Stevenson, the neighbor who was there?
6: Yes, sir. Well, when he told me that, I asked him where the rifle was, but he said it was missing. I asked him to explain, and he said that while he had been in church the previous Sunday, the rifle had disappeared from his house. And then you continued your investigations, did you? Yes, sir, as far as I could. Um, We were unable to find any further evidence that pointed in any way to the three persons who were on the farm that day. Mr. Boer Sr., Vernon Boer, or uh, Charles Stevenson. And finally, Inspector Longacre and I went back to Edmonton, made our report to Chief Gear.
5: Very well. Uh, Thank you, Detective Leslie. Yes, sir. Uh, Call Dr. Heslip. Uh,
1: Dr. Heslip described what he had found, the nature of the wounds and so on, and was pretty well able to fix the various times of death.
5: Mrs. Boer appears to have been the first victim. Uh, She was shot at the table where she was sitting, cleaning strawberries. Her son, Fred, was killed next, probably when he started towards the dining room after hearing the shots. And the two hired men... uh, Rossett and Crombie, were they killed at the same time, doctor? No. As far as I could estimate, Rosick was killed about half an hour after the other two, and uh, Crombie about two hours later. This would agree with the evidence already given by some of the neighbors who say they heard shots about those times. That is to say, about uh, 6, 6.30, and uh,
1: 8 o'clock. Thank you, doctor. (laughs) The trouble was that none of the neighbors who heard the shots paid any attention to them. There was usually someone out hunting and the sound of shooting was quite common. After Dr. Heslop gave his evidence and was followed by some of the neighbors, Vernon Boer was called to the stand.
5: Mr. Boer, you heard the evidence of Robert Scott, did you? Yes, sir. He stated that he had driven down the road which passes your ranch about 6.30 and that he stopped to talk to you. Is that correct? Yes, sir. We were
4: talking about various things and then... Roger came up and asked me what other chores were
5: to be done that evening. And what did you tell him? Uh, I I told him to go over the barn and feed the pigs. What have you to say about uh, hearing any shots? Well, I I think I I did hear some shots about 8 o'clock, but I didn't pay any
4: attention to them. I thought maybe it was a tractor backfiring or someone shooting at a fox, maybe Charlie
5: Stevenson. You didn't trouble to find out what they were? No, sir.
4: Uh, On the farm, you hear shooting all the time.
2: Yes.
5: All right, Mr. Boer. Uh, Call Charles Stevenson. (coughs) (coughs) Mr. Stevenson, you told the police, I believe, that you had a three-zero-three rifle.
3: Yes, sir. But it disappeared. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know what happened, except that it must have been stolen. Have you any idea when? Well, like I told the police, I figure it was taken on the Sunday before the shooting. While I was in church. I know it was there when I put on my church clothes. And it was missing when I came home and took them off. Did you report it? No, sir. Why not? Because I thought someone might have just borrowed it. Borrowed it? Yes, sir. If I needed a gun, I wouldn't think twice about borrowing a friend's. It's the custom around here.
1: Then the coroner asked Henry Boer and Vernon Boer where they were on that particular Sunday, and they both said they were in church and that they didn't know anything about Stevenson's rifle. And that's about all the evidence there was. Coroner's jury went out and deliberated, and the best they could do was to come back with the verdict that it was murder by a person or persons unknown. I tell you, it didn't make us policemen feel very good. The shooting of four people like that on a farm shouldn't have been so hard to solve. It wasn't as if the murderer could get lost among thousands of people the way he could in a city. But there was. There was nothing else we could do. Nothing in reason, that is. Everything that happened after that inquest was a... It was as unreasonable as the weirdest flights of fancy in some book of detective fiction. And I started it against my own common sense. All during that inquest, there was a man sitting there that I had persuaded to stop off on his way to the Arctic to study the mentality of the Eskimos. His name was Dr. Maximilian Langsner originally, from Vienna. And I heard about him because of something he did in Vancouver. The local press had played him up because of the way he'd solved a jewel robbery there. And I read an interview he gave.
7: I hear there is a robbery. The police have a suspect, but no jewels. I go to the police and I say that I, Langsner, can find the jewels. Only because they are in despair, they listen to me. I say... Place me in the cell with the suspect and I will tell you. So in the cell for a half an hour I am. I say nothing. I come out. I say to the police, the jewels are hidden behind a picture in a room with yellow walls. They say, we have searched twice the room with yellow walls. It is the room of the girlfriend of the suspect. There is nothing. How do you know there is such a room? I say to them, never mind. Search. So they search, and behind the picture, they find the jewels under the wallpaper.
1: Well, I'm a policeman. I don't believe in amateurs meddling in our work, but we hadn't made much of a job of the Boer murders, and when I read about this fellow finding the jewels in Vancouver, I wrote to him and invited him to come and have a crack at our mystery. He arrived in Edmonton the day of the inquest, and Detective Leslie met him at the station and drove him to where the inquest was being held.
6: Do you mind me asking you how you solved that job in Vancouver, Doctor?
7: <laughs> You're not the only one who asked. I solve it by telepathy. <laughs> telepathy? Yeah, yeah. If I am in contact with another person, I can read his thoughts. But how do you do that? I I don't know. Some people have the power, some have not. I call it brainwaves. I am a student of the mind. I was on my later studies, the minds of the Eskimos, when your chief wrote to me. Well, I hope you can do a better job than we did, Doctor. We shall see. We shall see.
1: So this was the man who sat all through the coroner's inquest, saying nothing but watching and listening very intently. After it was over, he and Leslie came into my office.
6: Well, Chief, that didn't get us anywhere, did it?
1: No. But uh, before I ask Dr. Langsner for his opinion, I'd like to mention just how it looks to me. Seems to me that there are three people who could be guilty. Henry Boer, the father, Vernon Boer, the son, and Charles Stevenson, the neighbor. Agreed? Sure. But the trouble is that none of them has a motive. Henry thought the world of his wife is completely broken up by her death. Hmm. And Vernon, he hasn't got the slightest reason for killing his mother. And certainly Charles Stevenson hasn't.
6: Well, what do you think then, Chief?
1: I think that there's a psychopathic killer loose somewhere. Someone who kills without rhyme or reason. And that's the man we've got to get hold of. Um,
6: I think you're probably right.
1: Uh, Dr. Langsley, you've uh, seen yeah. all the suspects and heard all the evidence. You know as much about it now as we do.
7: What is your opinion? First, I disagree that there are three suspects... There is only one. Only Yeah, yeah, only one. The man who killed all those four people is Vernon Boer. Vernon Boer? Yeah, yeah, that I know. But how can you be so sure? Can you prove it? Mm, I have no proof. But listen to me now. In the brain, there are electrical charges. And because of those charges, I can read the thoughts of the persons who are near me. Today I have read the thoughts of every person who was on the witness stand. Mind reading? Well, if you want to call it that, yeah, good. <laughs> Let me explain When a man commits a violent crime, he develops a strong sense of guilt, and at the same time he develops a fear of being discovered. You would agree, huh? Yes, I guess I would. Oh, good, good. Then, because of that, he goes over and over the details of the crime in his mind over and over again. The way I describe it, he vocalizes his crime in his mind. Uh, you're getting beyond me, Doctor. No, no, it is not so difficult to understand. If, if you have some problem worrying you, do you not think it over and over? And sometimes you cannot sleep because thinking about it, huh? Well,
2: yes, yeah, that's true.
7: Yeah, then you see, your mind is full of it. And in such a case, I can read your thoughts as I did today.
1: Huh? Uh, what was Vernon Boer thinking?
7: Eh, I would like to be closer to him. But I do know he is worried. And he will give us a clue. A clue we'd like to find is a rifle. Did you, uh... Read anything about that? Yeah. I can tell you where is the rifle. It was when Charles Stevenson was telling how his rifle was lost. Yes, I remember. While he was telling, Vernon was thinking. Thinking very hard because it would be dangerous for him if the rifle was found. So when he is thinking, I am reading his mind. And I see where he has put the rifle. Where, Doctor? It is... It is in a patch of prairie grass... About uh, 200 yards, yeah, 200 yards behind the farmhouse. Now, wait now, yeah, 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 let's see. It is to the west, because I can see the sun shining in that direction. Uh, Are you sure of that, Doctor? Yeah, I am sure. That is what he is thinking. It is a very clear picture.
1: All right, then. Will you come out with us to the boar farm tomorrow morning?
7: Why, of course. Am I not here to help you?
1: What's he doing? Just
6: seems to be walking back and forth, back of the house there, like a guy in a trance.
1: <laughs> Funny-looking duck, isn't he, Chief? I don't care if he looks like a man from Mars, so long as he can clear this murder on Yeah. <laughs> looks like all the comic Viennese professors you ever heard of. Long, white hair. The accent? No, was... Wait, I, I think he wants us.
7: Mr. Leslie, will you come here, please? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Sure, Professor. Looks like he's found something. I hope so. You found something, Doctor? I think so. Stand here now by this tree with me. Okay. Now what? Now, in this direction where I point, you walk ten steps straight ahead, please. Uh, uh, This way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now walk. Okay.
1: You really think you know where the rifle is, Doctor?
7: We will see. We will see. Seven,
8: eight, nine... Hey, hey,
6: Chief. Here it is. Hey, look. I was lying in the grass.
7: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, well, I saw it in his mind. Doctor, I've got
1: to hand it to you. Come on, we'll get back to town and get that identified. Well, Doctor, that's it, all right. Stevenson identifies it as his
7: rifle. But there aren't any fingerprints on Oh, <laughs> of course not. Vernon Boer wiped them off. When he was on the witness stand, he was thinking, I remember, he was thinking he was so glad he had done so. <laughs> Doctor,
1: you're a wonder. You <laughs> certainly are. But, um, well, there still isn't direct evidence against Vernon.
6: Yes, but it's something.
1: I think it's enough to hold him as a material witness, the best we can do at the moment. Have him brought in, will you, and we'll keep him
7: here in custody.
1: All right, Chief. Uh,
6: what happens then? We can't keep him locked up indefinitely.
7: Please, may I suggest...
1: Please do, Doctor.
7: When you have him in the jail, permit me to be in his cell too. Or uh, close to it. In the next one, perhaps, yeah? Well,
1: what good will that do?
7: If I am close to him, I can read his brain waves.
1: All right, Doctor, but... I need evidence. Brainwaves aren't evidence I can take into court.
7: Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But please. Let me try, yeah. Then there will come perhaps some information. After
1: the way you found that gun, I'm willing to try anything. Let's see how would it be if you sat right outside the cell and uh, we'll make sure there'll be no noise or interruption. Good,
7: good. That will be all right.
1: So that's what we arranged. We put Vernon Bohr in the cell and Dr. Langsner sat right outside the bars where he could see Vernon and Vernon could see him. He was there for an hour. It was a very strange session. The doc never said a word, just sat there smiling. But Vernon did his best to start a conversation.
4: What are you doing there? He deaf or something? What's the idea? Just sitting, staring at me? Look, I, I don't know who you are. but Maybe you know something about why I'm here. They got nothing on me. Where'd they lock me up? gives me the creep. Well, you just sit there, smiling, saying nothing. Wait a minute, didn't I see you at the inquest? Sure I did, I... I couldn't miss you with that long white hair of yours. (sighs) Come on, now. Tell me what you're doing. What do you want? Okay, keep your mouth shut, then might as well shut up myself. I'm wasting my time with you.
1: And the rest of the hour went by in silence. Doctor just sitting there. Vernon, finally sitting on his bunk with his back turned. Just silence. And then Dr. Langsner got up, smiled and said goodbye and came into my office.
7: Well, Doctor, how did you make out? Did you get anything? Yeah, yeah. I can tell you now for sure. Vernon Boer is guilty. You're sure of that? Yeah
1: but uh why did he do it do you know that
7: mm, not exactly but i can tell you this he hated his mother when that is why he killed her. hated her yeah yeah but i cannot tell yet why when he is not sorry for killing her when he went into the dining room to kill her she was sitting there at the table and she spoke to him without turning around this somehow startled him He became very angry, and he shot her three times. It's incredible. But uh, what about his brother? Ah, he is sorry for that. But he could not help it. His brother came to the door when he heard the shots. When Vernon killed him, so he would not tell what Vernon had done.
1: I see. But uh, what about the hired men? Rosick and Crombie, they didn't know what had happened.
7: Ah, no, uh, they did not know. But after the shooting, Vernon must hide the gun, No. So he goes out to the fields to find a place to hide it. And he is afraid that Rozhik is watching him. So he kills him, too. And Crombie? Ah, He is sad about that, too. See, he likes Crombie, but he thinks for a long time. And he believes there is a danger from him. So after two hours, he looks for him and kills him, too. So all witnesses are dead, you see. Well, it makes sense.
1: That may very well be true, but... uh... How are we going to prove it?
7: I think there is a way. You see, Vernon Boer is afraid of some woman. You should find her. What woman? What's she got to do with it? Her. This is what I read from Vernon's mind. On Sunday, he steals the gun from Charles Stevenson.
6: Yes, Stevenson said it was stolen while he was at church. But Vernon was at church, too.
7: We have proof. Yeah, but this woman, she sees him go out of the church. It was while the sermon was being given. But you... You can't tell who she is? Mm, she, she was wearing, what do you call, a, a, a bonnet uh, like this. Oh, a, a poke bonnet? Yeah, 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 a poke bonnet. And she has small, dark eyes and a long, square jaw. She was sitting in the pew next to the last and left of the center aisle. She saw him leave, and she watched for him to come back. Does he know that? Oh, yeah, yeah, he knows. And he is afraid of her. So you find her, when she is proof. It didn't take me long to find her.
6: Her name was Emma Higgins, and she was just the kind of prying spinster that would notice everything that went on. Oh, you know the kind. Spends more time in church watching for the young people, see how they behave, rather than listening to the service. Well, I asked her about Vernon, and she said, Sure, she saw him leave. She just sat there to see if he came back. Well, I gathered she didn't approve of people who left during the sermon. Though I doubt if she herself was paying much attention to the one that Sunday. <laughs> but as the chief said, we still hadn't got any evidence we could take into court. So, we planned a meeting. We got Emma into the chief's office and had her standing there in the middle of the room with Dr. Langsner standing just behind her. Then Chief Gear sat at his desk while I and another detective stood on either side of the door. Then Vernon Boer was brought into the room. Emma Higgins started up right away.
9: Vernon, I saw you leave the church that Sunday, the day Charlie Stevenson's rifle was stolen.
4: I know you did, Emma.
9: Well. Oh, let me confess.
10: Let me confess. I killed him. I killed him. I killed him.
1: And that was it. Vernon Brewer dictated a full confession and signed it. It was just as Dr. Langsner had said, except that he filled in the reasons why. My mother,
4: deeply loved as she was throughout the community, was a, a dominating and dictatorial person. She held her menfolk in a tight rein, especially me, her youngest and favorite son. I fell in love with a lovely girl, a daughter of a migrant farm worker. Mother sternly refused to countenance the marriage while well, my father, Henry bore, <laughs> he laughed af- off the affair as a teenage whim. One day, my mother referred to my girl in slighting terms, which made me mad. I brought her to the farm on a visit one Sunday afternoon. My mother told her to leave the place at once. My resentment blazed up, and the result was was my decision to kill my mother. That same evening, I borrowed the three-zero-three rifle from Charlie Stevenson
1: while he was in church. As for the reasons why he killed the others, Dr. Langsner had told us that, and the confession confirmed it. Werner went on trial for murder in the spring, but that confession almost amounted to a plea of guilty. It was all over quickly, and... He was hanged on April 16th, 1929. The only mystery remaining was how Dr. Langsner read Vernon's mind. Are there electrical charges in the brain that make waves? I don't know. And the professor never had a chance to develop his theories because he died soon after up among the Eskimos while he was studying their patterns of thought. He wasn't there to give evidence at the trial. What jury would have believed him? For that matter, do you think a down-to-earth policeman like me would have believed what Langsner did if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes? The Boer case was produced in Montreal by Rupert Kaplan as part of the CBC series Famous Canadian Trials. Script by Alan King, based on research by R.S. Lambert. Leading roles were played by Bud Knapp, Henry Raymer, Leo Chichery, Albert Miller... Donnelly Rhodes, Walter Massey, Henry Hovenkamp, Norman Tavis, and Eileen Clifford.
0: The show from our Canadians Abroad segment is an episode of the Jack Benny Show. Now there has been some dispute as to whether there is a Canadian playing in this particular series or not. But I believe that Mary Livingston was Canadian... The other person featured in this particular episode, which is called The Horn Blows at Midnight, is Fletcher Markle, who was a very famous Canadian radio director and actor. And uh, you could say that he was Canada's Orson Welles. So here are Mary Livingston and Fletcher Markle in The Horn Blows at Midnight.
8: program starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson.
11: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, let's go back about an hour. Jack is in his dressing room, getting ready for the broadcast. Rochester, did you run over and get me a sandwich?
8: Yeah, boss, here it is.
11: Good. Oh, for heaven's sake. Sardines. Rochester, I can't understand you. What's the matter, boss? You never get anything right. When I send you for a chicken sandwich, you bring me ham. When I ask you for a ham sandwich, you bring me cheese. When I ask you for cheese, you bring me egg. When I ask for egg, you bring me turkey. And today, you bring me a sardine sandwich. Now, what did I send you for? A sardine
8: sandwich. (laughs)
11: Oh, yes, I forgot. (laughs) But look, Rochester, I figured you'd make a mistake. I asked you for a sardine sandwich because I wanted corned beef.
8: I knew that, but they were out of corned beef, so I brought you sardines.
11: All right, I'll eat the sardine sandwich. Did you get me a bottle of Coca-Cola? Yes,
8: boss, here it is.
11: Wait a minute. This is root beer.
8: That's funny. I asked for seven up.
11: Oh, fine. Well, at least you got the sandwich on rye. How did that happen?
8: Oh, we never did have trouble with the bread.
11: Well, i better eat it in a hurry. Oh, darn it. What's the
8: matter?
11: And I pick up the sandwich, the sardine slipped out went into my sleeve. Help me get them out. Mm, what a mess.
2: <laughs> well,
11: I'll eat after the broadcast. Now, help me finish dressing.
8: Okay. Which toupee do you want, boss? The one with the part in the middle or the part on the
2: side?
11: Uh, Didn't you bring the black one with the widow's peak?
2: Oh,
8: you can't wear that toupee anymore. Why not? It turned gray while you were dickering with CBS.
11: (laughs) Oh, stop. Dusty, maybe, but gray, no. Now, Rochester. (coughs) Who is it?
9: It's me, Jack. Come
11: on in, Mary.
9: Jack, did you take my fountain pen?
11: Yes, yeah, yes, here you are, Mary. You know, I, I use it. I just put down a wonderful joke I want you to do on the program and surprise the cast. Here, read it.
9: Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack. Another joke about my sister, Babe?
11: Well, it's funny. Go ahead and read it. I want to hear how it'll sound on the
9: program. Oh, all right. Say, Jack, my sister, Babe, lost her job in that restaurant.
11: But Mary, she was with that restaurant five years. How come they let her go?
9: (laughs) They've got a cat to catch the mice now.
11: (laughs) Oh, poor babe. And after she let her fingernails grow.
9: (laughs) Jack, we can't say a thing like that about babe.
11: Why not? That's a funny joke.
9: Joke nothing. It really happened to her.
11: (laughs) Oh, well, then we won't do the gag. I don't want to hurt her feelings. I'll think of something.
9: Well, I hope you're not serious about doing the horn blows at midnight.
8: Uh Uh-oh, Miss Livingston, you shouldn't have said that.
11: Rochester, what's wrong with mentioning the horn blows at midnight?
8: It doesn't bother me, but the rye red turned white.
11: <laughs> Don't be funny. Now, look, Mary, I'm still going to do that play on the Ford Theater. Fletcher Markle, the director, gave me a contract, and that's that. Now, come on, let's get out on the stage.
9: Well, wait a minute. You're not going to do the program in that polo shirt.
11: Why, what's wrong with a polo shirt? Clark Gable wears one.
9: So what? Jane Russell wears sweaters, but I'm a suit gal myself.
11: <laughs> All right. Come on, Mary, let's get out on the stage.
2: here.
11: Look, Jackson, what'd you stop us for? We were rehearsing a number. I know, Phil, but I just want to compliment you on trying to improve the orchestra. I noticed you got a harp this week. Yeah, but we can't use it anymore, Jackson. That was a mistake. Why? What happened? During rehearsal, Frankie woke up, saw the harp, and thought he was dead. No. Then he tried to fly over the piano and almost broke his neck. (laughs) Well, it serves them right for sleeping during rehearsal.
9: Uh, Jack, let's run through our parts till the others get here.
11: Okay. Here, Phil, take a script. Look, Jackson, I don't need no script. I'm loaded with jokes. Phil, take a script. I thought of a gag that's a dilly. Get this. On my way down to the studio, I stopped off at a bar. Phil, take a script. And while I was there, I met a fellow who came from Venice, Italy. Phil. So I bought him a drink. He bought me a drink. Then I bought him a drink. Then he bought me a drink. Phil. We kept buying each other drinks for a couple of hours, and when I walked out, he was under the table.
2: Phil. Phil,
11: take a script. Huh? Well, don't you get it, Jackson? The guy who was under the table was from Venice, a Venetian. So what? I'm the
6: only guy who ever drank a Venetian blind. LAUGHTER
10: If you lived in Beverly Hills, they'd blow up your house.
2: <laughs> Bill. Don't
8: hit me off, Jackson. I'm rolling now.
2: <laughs> hey,
11: Liv.
8: How'd you like that joke, lover?
9: Bill, take a script.
11: Thanks, Mary. And don't get too close to Phil. He might exhale and disintegrate your nylons. <laughs> <laughs> look, now let's cut out all Jack, this foolishness Jack. and get down to a... Huh? Uh, Jack. Oh, hello, uh, Don. Hello. hello. The quartet, hello. quartet is here. You better rehearse them first. Oh, the sportsman? All right. Say, did you tell the boys that instead of a popular song, I wanted something a little different this week? You know, something classical? You know, we have music lovers listening in now. Oh, yes, Jack, and they have a wonderful number prepared. It's Ponchielli's Dance of the Hours from La
12: Gioconda.
11: Oh, I... What was that, Dan? <laughs> Pochiello's Dance of the Hours from La Gioconda. Oh, yes, that's what I hoped you'd said.
2: <laughs> Phil,
11: can your musicians play Pochiello's Dance of the Hours from La Gioconda? Yeah, but it'll still sound like that's what I like about the song.
2: <laughs> well, I don't want them.
11: Have them play what's written. Take it, boys.
2: and you are
10: You should pop a lucky Take a pop, take a pop Cause we know that you'll never get enough Of a lucky, get enough Of a lucky, sure enough, sure enough You will like a lucky strike That's Made of light and fine tobacco oh, Smoke a lucky
2: Round and firm and fully packed So small
10: a lucky Up on the lucky level, up on a lucky level, that's where you'll be when you're popping on a lucky. So you see. Flight and L S M T. Take a lucky from your vest, make a test, you will feel your level best. For lucky, strike me! Find a bag
2: la
10: la 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 la. Such light and fine and mild, a bag o' luck, la 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 la
2: la
10: la la.
11: Was a wonderful number you prepared with the boys. Ponchielly's Dance of the Hours from La Cienega. (laughs) (laughs)
2: No, no,
11: Jack. That's La Giaconda. Oh, oh, yeah. That's below Sepulveda. (laughs) (laughs) We had Pico, but I changed it. (laughs) LAUGHTER the pulpit is funnier than Pete, <laughs> And Phil, Phil, your orchestra did surprisingly well, yeah? well. What are you so surprised about? I haven't told you this, but they want my band to play at the Academy Awards ceremonies. Really? Phil, <laughs> so why in the world would they want your band to play for the Academy Awards? Well, we play loud and it'll drown out the screams of the losers.
2: <laughs> well,
11: Phil, I don't believe that you or your band. Come in.
9: Look who it is.
11: Oh, yes, Fletcher Markle. Hello, Mr. Markle. Hello, Jack. <laughs> Jack, uh, I hope I'm not interrupting, but, well, that's uh... That's quite all right, Fletcher. I, uh, I suppose you've come over to discuss my appearance on the Ford Theater.
12: Yes, that's exactly why I'm here.
11: Good, good. Is there something about the casting?
12: No, not the casting.
11: Oh, is it about the rehearsals? No, not rehearsals. Oh. Is it about the picture I selected to do? Yes, it stinks.
2: <laughs>
11: what? Jack. Uh
12: huh. As director of the Ford Theater it really, stinks. I Why are you, you? laughing?
2: <laughs> what are what were you gonna say?
12: Director of the Ford Theater, I beg you, really, don't do this on our program.
11: Now, wait a minute, Mr. Markle. You signed a contract with me, didn't you?
12: Yes, but you tricked me. That contract said you were going to do an adventure story of the sea called Sailing Around Cape Horn.
11: Well, you didn't read the small type in the contract. The full title was Sailing Around Cape Horn Blows at Midnight. (laughs) And that's what I'm going to do.
2: Jack, I think
9: Mr. Markle is right. That script isn't suitable for radio. I know that, Mary,
11: but I went through the screenplay, eliminated all the dull stuff, and I'm just going to do the part that sparkled. Mr. Benny, we have an hour program, not a spot announcement. (laughs) I know it's an hour program, and I'm going to do the horn blows at midnight, and it'll be a great show, believe me. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. So long, Jack.
12: Along, Mr. Marco. Oh, uh, by the way, Jack, when you signed that contract, there was one thing I neglected to get for our records. Uh, what's your social security number?
11: Two. <laughs> Two.
2: Al
9: Jolson is number
2: one. <laughs>
11: Yes, we got there early. Well, so long, Fletcher. See you March 4.
12: Goodbye, Jack. To be or not to be, that is the question. Or that 'tis wiser to use gas and smell up the house, or use a pistol and mess up the rug. What'd you say, Fletcher? Nothing. Goodbye. Jack, I can't understand
11: you. Why, Don? Well, if they're so set against your doing the horn blows at midnight, why do you insist on it? Because once and for all, I'm going to prove to everyone that it's a great story. Now, Don, imagine this plot. The chief of the planets sends an angel down to Earth to blow a trumpet and destroy the whole world. And I'm the angel.
2: Now, cut that (laughs) out!
11: I try to do something dignified, and everybody has to butt in, and... <laughs> I never saw anything... Oh, hello, Dennis. Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Congratulate me. Congratulate you? Why?
13: I just sold my bicycle for $10,000.
2: <laughs> you...
11: you what?
13: Yeah, look, here's the check.
11: Let me see that. Pay to the order of Dennis Day $10,000. Oh, for heaven's sake, kid. This check isn't even signed. I noticed that, but
13: I didn't want to mention it. Why? When a man gives you $10,000 for a bicycle, why antagonize
11: him?
2: <laughs>
11: Holy smoke.
9: Dennis, I'm afraid you were cheated. Didn't you even get the name of the man who bought it? Oh,
13: sure. He told me his name, all right. What was it? Napoleon Bonaparte.
9: <laughs> oh, fine. Don't you know anything? Napoleon Bonaparte has been dead for over a hundred years.
11: He has? Certainly.
13: Then what does he want with a bicycle?
11: <laughs> now, look, Dennis. Dennis, my child, look.
2: <laughs> Instead of having any
11: more of this nonsense, look at, how about running through your song? Okay, Well, oh, by the way, Mr. Benny, happy birthday. My birthday was last week. I know
13: but that bubble dancer was held over.
11: Good, good. Now what number are you gonna do?
13: The title song from Walt Disney's picture so dear to my heart.
11: All right, let's hear it.
2: Okay.
10: September day with the leaves turning.
11: good song, Dennis, and you sang it beautifully.
13: Why, you're just saying that because I'm rich now.
11: (laughs) Dennis, that check's no good.
13: You never like anything that anybody else has. Oh,
11: boy. Dennis, the last time I'm going to compliment you on your singing, because every time I do, you start right in. Come in. Yes, sir, is there... Well, it's Jack Warner of the Warner Brothers Studios. Hello, Jack. Hello. Well, this is a surprise. Uh, uh, What can I do for you, Mr. Warner? Well, Jack, I just heard the news about your making an appearance on the 4th Theater. Yes, Mr. Warner, on March 4th. And I'm going to do the Horn Blows at Midnight. That's just what I want to talk to you about. What? Look, Jack, you made this picture for us in 1944, didn't you? That's right. It was for the Warner Brothers. Well, since then, our studio has produced The Adventures of Don Juan, Life of Father, Key Largo, John Loves Mary... And this year, our two pictures, Johnny Belinda and the treasurer of the Sierra Madre, are up for the Academy Awards. So? So we're rolling again. Let us alone. <laughs> now, uh... <laughs> now, now, just a minute, Mr. Warner. How can you say that? You yourself told me that when the Horn Blows at Midnight was shown in Hollywood, the theater made money. That's right. We rented the balcony out as a trailer camp. (laughs) But, Mr. Warner, you can't put all the blame on me. When you did that picture, you made one big mistake. Yeah, I know. We put film in the camera. (laughs)
2: Look,
11: Mr. Warner, that's an old joke. Yeah, if I had anything new, I'd have put it in the picture.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm sorry,
11: but I still think it's a great story. Say, if you didn't produce it good, what could I do?
2: (laughs) But if you'd have listened to me,
11: if you'd listened to me while we were making it, the horn blows at midnight would have been a terrific hit. Jack, we tried everything. We made a lot of retakes. It was awful how we threw money away on that picture. Threw money away? Yeah, we spent over $500,000 for a new finish, and nobody ever stayed to see it. No wonder you can't make good pictures. You fluff over lines. You
2: know? <laughs> now, look, Jack, Jack
11: Warner, I want to tell you something. All of that about the horned rose of I was not my fault. I think that picture had great possibilities. Well, no, Jack, it missed both ways. Both <laughs> ways? What do you mean? Well, if it had been a little better, we might have gotten our money back in the theaters. Yes? If it were a little worse, it would be, it would be unnatural for television.
2: <laughs>
11: Never m- m- mind television. <laughs> I'll tell you, Mr. Warner's going to be great when I do it on the Ford Theater. All right, Jack, if you won't listen to reason, maybe you'll listen to this. We'll give you $5,000 not to do it. No. $10,000. I'm sorry, Mr. Warner, but money means nothing to me.
9: I've got to listen to a repeat show and see if he really heard that. See if I really
2: heard See that. if I really heard <laughs> <laughs>
11: You ought to make your pictures with Jack Warner.
2: <laughs> I know we
11: rehearsed this. I know it. Anything else? Huh?
2: Uh, <laughs> what? Uh,
11: just a little shaker.
2: <laughs> I've had a pair of dice,
11: My hands It'll be very bad. All right. Read just
2: what's there. That's all. Read what's there.
11: Come on. Here it is. Wait a minute.
2: Here it is. Here, well, Jack. Oh, no, no, no. oh, yeah. Oh, I see. Go ahead. Yeah,
11: so... Mary... you didn't say Mary. I say please. Mary, please. Oh, so, yeah. You got the next <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Jack, here's my final offer. My brother Harry and I are willing to take you into the firm and make you one of the Warner Brothers. No, I'm afraid not. That means I'd have to change my name. If you do the picture, we're going to change ours. <laughs> I'm sorry, but my mind is made up. I'm going to do the horn blows at midnight on the radio, and that's final, Mister Warner. Just call me Sam Goldwyn.
2: <laughs> what?
11: Yeah, you heard me. Just call me Sam Goldwyn. You've got to say goodbye. Sam. Oh, I've no, just say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> a $50 actor to play Jack Warner.
2: I had to get the Jack Warner. What?
9: Jack. What? I've never... I've never seen you so determined. Why didn't you consider his offer of going in with the Warner Brothers?
11: I'll tell you why. Because I have my own company. I just produced a picture myself called The Lucky Stiff. And there's a wonderful article about it in the new Liberty magazine.
13: I know, Mr. Benny. I saw
11: it. You saw the article in Liberty about me, Dennis? What did it say?
13: Reading time, 11 minutes. (laughs)
11: Look, Dennis. But I made it in nine. What? I had my bicycle then. I don't care about the reading time. What did the article say about...
9: Oh, I'll get it, Jack. Hello? New York calling? Yes, he's here. Jack, it's Mr. William Paley, the head of CBS.
11: Oh. Oh, I wonder what he wants. Uh, Hello, Mr. Paley. Yes, yes, this is Jack. Oh, yes, I'm feeling fine. How are you? Good, good. What? Yes, yes, that's right, on March the 4th. Yes, I know the four theaters on CBS. And you want to hear something funny? Fletcher Markle and Jack Warner came over and tried to talk me out of doing the horn...
2: <laughs> what?
11: Now, just the... I know Mr. Paley, but... But Mr. Paley... But
2: but 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 But
11: Mr. Paley. When? <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Paley, but I made up my mind and I'm going to do the horn blows at midnight on the Ford Theater March 4th, and that's final. Yes, Mr. Paley. Goodbye.
9: Hmm. Jack. Jack, how could you talk to Mr. Paley like that?
11: Mary, there comes a time in every man's life when he must have the courage of his convictions, when he must have faith in his own judgment, So he can stand up and face the world with pride and with dignity.
9: Jack, what's that sticking out of your sleeve?
11: Huh? Oh, it's a sardine. (laughs) Must have got caught in my suspenders. (laughs) Thanks, Fletcher Markle and Jack Warner. Good night, everybody.
8: Be sure to hear the CBS Sunday lineup every week and don't miss Dennis Day in a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for Amos Mandy Shaw, followed immediately over most of these same
10: stations. This is
8: CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: Gee whiz, time sure does pass fast when you're having fun, doesn't it? That's it for this time. I look forward to seeing you again next week. If you've enjoyed the shows you've heard during the past hour, be sure to tune in again next week same time, same station, when once again, we'll listen to programs that are remembered today thanks to the involvement of Canadians in old-time radio. This is Devin Wilkins speaking.